We said we'd walk together Baby, come with me That come the twilight Should we lose our way If as we were walking Hands should slip free I'll wait for you Should I fall behind Wait for me Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. And joining me today is the man who played the character of John in Archie Gipp's 2007 film, Loveless in Los Angeles, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? You know, you could have you could have made money with me by asking what my character name was in Loveless in Los Angeles, and I would not have been able to tell you. I have no idea what my character name. I know I was an agent. I know what my profession is. You know, I got um, I got emails this week because people were making fun of this part of the podcast where you always hit me with with these odd roles I've played in my life, and, and I was getting a lot of derision for this. And I was saying, you, you know, I, when you get a script, a lot of times they don't put Stephen Tobolowsky or David Chin. They'll just put Chin, you know. And, and the one time your character's introduced, it'll say, David Chin, future American citizen, managing editor of Slash Films, sits calmly and confidently behind his computer screen. That's the one time in the script you may see your entire name. And it and you just go and you start looking for the chins in the script and you don't really know what your name is. In that particular show, I remember the office I worked in. I remember I was an agent and I remember the craft service table because it had a lot of those Quaker oat meal breakfast bars and i was thinking that was that was a little disappointing not the quaker oats breakfast bars are disappointing i love quaker oats breakfast bars but you know it would have been nice to have a nice breakfast burrito i see, but I I see. Did. well the plot of uh, loveless in los angeles for those of you who are going to put this on your netflix queue is when a womanizing reality dating tv producer runs into his college crush he realizes his bar hopping bed hopping ways are leaving him unfulfilled. So he has the only woman he ever had feelings for retrain him to become the nice guy he once was. Uh, this doesn't sound too bad. It's standard yeah, romantic comedy thing. I'm sorry, what? I may have to watch that. There you go. There you go. Yeah. To catch Stephen Tobolowsky in that. Anyway, you know, Stephen, we were talking uh, before the show about some of the emails that you get, and uh, a lot of them are pretty awesome. You can check out some of these emails at, by going to tobolowski.tumblr.com. That's T-O-B-O-L-O-W-S-K-Y dot T-U-M-B-L-R dot com, uh, where we have this website called the Tobolowski Testimony set up with you know people writing in and their crazy stories from listening to your show. We have one person here who uh, you know took your your podcast on a on a road trip with them, and other people here who've been really moved and. Um, and sort of changed by some of the stories that you've been telling, uh, and it's just you know been really great to see that great to see that you know 
uh, people are really enjoying your stories, taking them to heart, and, and, and things like that. What, what's been your reaction, Stephen? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I just read this scientific article about how certain things are contagious that we never assumed were contagious, like blame is contagious, uh, self-control is contagious. And we talked about a l- little bit on our show here. If you hang out with people who party a lot, you tend to party a lot. Another thing that's contagious a little bit is the mantle that's put on you from some of these emails I've gotten. Uh, some of the emails are, love the, love the podcast, made me laugh. It was a lot, of, a lot of fun. But a lot of them, basically from the more serious podcasts like The Alchemist, which is number four, or Conference Hour, which is number 13, some of the more serious podcasts, people have written me some pretty serious letters. And I felt I had to step up to the responsibility that some of those letters put upon me to address some of the issues I got. I got a lot of talk about what happens when you are heartbroken in your life. What happens when you lose love? What happens when you're, uh, you feel broken? And that is a little bit what this story is about today. I felt I had to step up to the plate and address the dozens of letters I got all over the world of people who were saying, what happens when you're lost? And, uh, and, and I think, David, one of the provisios you gave me a few shows back, I should mention, to, to get maximum benefit <laughs> out of uh, this week's show, it'd be good to know a little bit about the relationship I'm talking about, and that's my relationship with Beth. And uh, if the short version is, if you listen to 17, 18, and 19, I will be referring to Illinois. And you, if you want the full dose, you need 10, 11, 15 17, 18, and 19, which follows this narrative about Beth and myself. Um, but I'm going to start more in the present day a little bit. And I think here's a story, David, that I don't think you ever knew. Um, I went on a Boy Scout hike one weekend with my 11-year-old son, Robert, into the San Gabriel Mountains. And we were hiking to a place that's called the Bridge to Nowhere. It's a bridge that was built during FDR's first term when the government was making up all sorts of projects to get Americans back on the job. Uh, and they built things all over the country. But I bet you very few of them would be as beautiful as this bridge. The problem was <laughs> they never got around to building the roads to or from the bridge. Consequently, you had to hike a day into the mountains to find it. And my son and I saw it eventually. We didn't see it that day. The group of scouts we were hiking with were into competing with each other and hiking fast, and Robert and I fell behind. And somewhere we must have made a wrong turn, and no one looked back to see how we were doing, and we ended up lost. Lost in the mountains. Lost in the mountains alone and with about three hours of daylight left. This was a terrifying day, but a revealing one. And I learned that what is so awful about being lost isn't really where you are, but when you are. It's an issue of time more than location. 
Let me explain. The thought keeps coming back into your mind. When did I make the wrong turn? If I can only get back to the spot where I went right instead of left, I'd be happy. But you can't. And the reason you can't is you don't know how long you've been lost. A minute? Five minutes? An hour? Were you ever on the right track to begin with? You realize quickly that knowing where you are in a strange country is meaningless. But knowing when you are gives you a point of reference. And that's everything. Without time as a frame of reference, your strategy can only be to wander. After an hour of trekking through the mountain brush with no trail, you give up on question number one and settle for the follow-up. Okay, okay, I don't need to know how long I've been lost. Just please, please make me found. While you're lost, you look for all sorts of signs that you're not conscious of looking for in your regular day-to-day life. You look for signs that others at least have come your way. And failing that, you look to see if you can survive here on your own. I knew in the early 80s I was lost. My life with Beth had become unrecognizable. Over the past decades, my mind has sifted through the clues. I look for the bent twigs and those footprints to see what was my first misstep. And I keep coming back to that year in Illinois. Was it the night Beth and I read Claudia Riley's play and we walked home in silence? That night when Beth made a declaration in our living room that she wanted to be a writer, and I heard her words and I supported her at that moment, but deep down in the bottom of my soul, I felt that wanting to be a writer is a lot like wanting to be an actor. You can't become one on your own. I mean, no matter how much you want to do it, you become one when someone else hires you and says that's what you are. So was my first wrong step off the trail the disconnect I felt with Beth's passion that night? Or was it the summer before Illinois when Beth had the success of Am I Blue, followed by graduation, followed by a large expanse of nothing on the horizon, until finally, out of desperation, she got a job as a waitress at P.P. Gonzalez's Mexican restaurant. The net result of that endeavor for the two hours she actually had the job was she got to wear an outfit that made her look like the farm girl on a chili pepper jar. Was it her crying in my arms that afternoon before the matinee of Godspell when she looked up at me with a soul full of despair and said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Or Was it a dream she had one night a couple years earlier? She woke up screaming. She sat up in bed crying so hard it scared me. She stumbled to the bathroom sobbing, and I followed her, and I asked her, what's wrong? And through her tears, she just choked out mysteriously. It's too late. Too late. Nothing will ever be the same again. Nothing. I don't know. As for me... I remember the moment when I first felt a tear in our relationship. And it's a trivial moment. It's an almost invisible moment, but I still remember it after all this time. And it's been almost 35 years ago. Beth and I had just moved in together to the apartment on McFarland Street in Dallas. You know, the one with the fleas. We were playing cards on the living room floor. Nothing serious. Something like, go fish. And not for money. We were just killing time. And Beth wanted a Coke, so I offered to get it for her from the kitchen. 
Beth wasn't aware that on the wall of the kitchen was a picture covered with a glass frame, and it acted like a mirror, so I could see Beth around the corner sitting in the living room as I got her the Coke. In the reflection, while I was in the kitchen, I saw Beth pick up my hand and look at my cards, and then quickly look through the deck and put a card she wanted on top of the deck. I giggled in the kitchen as I put ice in a glass, figuring she was about to pull one of those Beth chokes on me that was nutty and dear at the same time. I came back from the kitchen, waiting for the punchline of whatever she was up to, but she never said a thing. She asked for a card from me. I didn't have it. I said, go fish. She drew from the deck. It was the card that she had placed there, and voila, she had the winning hand. I stared at her waiting, but there was no joke. She just won the game. I was unaccustomed to being the butt of a joke, and strangely, the entire non-event hurt my feelings. But I never said a word. At first, because I was waiting for the joke, and then because the timing was wrong, and then I didn't want to embarrass her, and then because I thought I was making a mountain out of a molehill, and finally, I was embarrassed for myself for conspiring with her to forever ruin the integrity of the game go fish. I look back at my silence in the living room as one of the profound mistakes of my life. I do. And I certainly see it as one of the wrong turns I made in our relationship. In that one little game of cards, the trained eye of a seasoned gambler could have marked the psychological tells of the way I dealt with life. It showed my reluctance to deal with what I knew to be the truth and my weapon of choice, silence. Just like lying, silence is a form of altering reality. It's easy to tell this story and portray myself as the victim of Beth's joke, but the true reading of events will show you that we both cheated. In general, people seem to cheat in two main ways. They cheat to try to make themselves look better, or they cheat to try to make themselves look worse. Make no mistake about it. Both are driven by ego and the desire to control the way you're viewed by the world. There are clearly more disadvantages to the first. Cheating to make yourself look better. Hmm. Mainly, if you cheat to win... People will expect more of you than you can deliver, and you will always feel their disappointment and pressure to continue cheating to succeed. When you cheat to make yourself look worse than you are, you may feel the rush of amazement and surprise from others when you do well, but the downside is that it eventually becomes irritating when people always think you're just lucky and not talented. I don't want to offend any of my atheist listeners, so feel free to substitute any noun you feel more comfortable with. But I think people want to show somehow, some way, they're touched by God. And they lie because they're afraid they're not. I think the one common tragedy that I've seen woven through my life and in people everywhere is that we cannot feel the miracle of our own lives. It was the summer of 1976. Beth and I were finished with our first and only year as graduate students at the University of Illinois. John Ahart, the head of the directing program, offered Beth and myself acting jobs for the summer, working in Springfield, writing and performing a show on the life of Abraham Lincoln. 
Death accepted. I declined. The obvious reason was I had just broken my toe and was in a gigantic plaster of Paris cast, and I thought it would be a little anachronistic for me to portray Ulysses S. Grant in a walking cast with autographs on it. I had already provided theatergoers of central Illinois with enough unintentional comedy this season. Another reason, and probably the real reason I turned the Lincoln show down, was that I was done with Act One. I needed to make a stab at making my life's dream come true of becoming an actor and making movies. I told Beth I would head out to L.A. and get a place for us, try to lay the groundwork, get a job, get an agent, get started with whatever a life in show business really looked like. We never really had a discussion about it as to whether she wanted to take this course or not. Sometimes I could see an unhappiness in her eyes when we talked about the future, but I never asked why. It was another unfortunate use of silence. Just as I could never see any other life for myself but a life with Beth, I also could never see any other path for myself than one that led to Los Angeles or New York. I was determined. And determination is often mistaken for purpose, usually it's only a sign of a lack of imagination. I packed up my Oldsmobile with books and clothes and various odds and ends I collected during the school year. And, you know, it's amazing how many keepsakes you gather, even from a part of your life you consider a detour. Now, the oddest thing I packed up for transport were three rocks I found in front of our house. I'd kicked them down to Green Street on my walk home from the theater department one day, and when I saw they were still on the curb a couple days later, I picked them up, and I liked the way they fit into my hand, and I said to myself, what if I kept these rocks for the rest of my life? I thought just that act of possession might make them magical, maybe like my relationship Maybe that's why I was determined to stay silent, that I didn't want to break any accidental spell that had been cast to grace us. I headed south for Dallas for a few weeks to recover, to have my cast removed before the journey west began. Beth packed up her Oldsmobile and headed for Springfield. We were still a couple. We still talked about the future, it's true. And we had a lot more adventures ahead of us than we ever could have imagined. And as I write this story now, David, I am still looking at those three rocks on my shelf. And if they became magical in the past decades, I have not been aware of the transformation. My first prayer of knowing when I was lost has never been answered. Fortunately, the second one has. I was found. And as for my many varied memories of my final years with Beth, they were also like that sunny afternoon on the mountain when without a path, I saw the beautiful bridge to nowhere. Now everyone dreams of a love lasting and What this world can do So let's make our steps clear That the other may see And girl, I wait for you If I should fall behind 
wait for me. As I've gotten older, I've recognized that there's a difference between an event and a process. An event is like turning on a light. You do it and it's done. A process is not so easy to describe. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, if you're lucky. And the way you describe a process depends entirely upon what point of the process you're talking about. I think the greatest wrongs movies have perpetrated on us is a false and lasting impression that relationships are some kind of event. There are movies where people fall in love and kiss and that's it. Music, it's over. Or the girl runs out to the bad boy in the Mustang and they drive off and there's music and it's over. Or even more to the point, someone says it's over and they walk out the door and it's over. But to quote the great Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. A broken heart is not an event. It's definitely a process. So healing a broken heart requires different strategies depending entirely upon what part of the process you're at. This requires awareness, self-reflection, and the courage to own up to your part of the breakup. But since nobody can do this, we generally try to make it through the pain with the big three, sex, drugs, and psychiatry. I had never been to a psychiatrist before I broke up with Beth. And it's hard to find a good one. It's hard for two main reasons. One is because there's so many bad ones. And two, to get the name of a good one, you have to ask friends who go to a lot of psychiatrists, and they're usually crazy. I got the name of Joan from a theater friend of mine who apparently had been subsidizing the mental health market in Southern California for years, and I asked if she was good, not really knowing what that criteria was. He started laughing and joyfully exclaimed that he was still mad as a hatter, but Joan was the woman he gave credit for for keeping him from flying off into space. See, that's what I mean. It's hard to tell if that was actually a good recommendation. I, well, I mean, I guess it is good not to fly off into space. So I decided to pay the $160 for 50 minutes to see what this psychiatry thing was all about. I walked into Joan's office, and my first impression was that she collected clocks. But then I quickly intuited from the unusual placement of the clocks in the room that they were functioning clocks and set up in strategic places to allow Joan to appear deep in thought while she was actually just fixated on how many more minutes there were in this session. She mechanically slid a box of Kleenex in my direction before we started. I found this act alone intimidating. I wasn't going to cry. I don't think she thought I was going to cry, but I think she was thinking that if he's paying full fare, I got to give him the whole show. When I started talking, I focused on the first year of my relationship with Beth and the last year, hoping to show the juxtaposition of love and hate, hope and despair. Joan called time at 49 minutes and 53 seconds. The next day, she called me up and told me that she didn't think she wanted me as a patient, but she asked for Beth's number. She gave me a recommendation to talk to her colleague Jack over in the Wilshire district. She said a man would probably be better suited for me. As I sat in Jack's waiting room, I realized that this therapy thing was as bad as dating and that you always had to tell the same story over and over again. They called my name and I walked into the private office. 
Jack was there lying down on the couch, smoking a pipe, while an empty metal folding chair awaited me in the middle of the room. Jack languidly blew pipe smoke in my direction, explaining that he's the one who needed the couch because I would be in and out of here in an hour, but he had to listen to people talk all day long. I told Jack he should spring for two couches, and then we could pretend we were bunkmates at the YMCA summer camp. He was not amused. I'd noticed Jack had four clocks positioned around the room in a strategic eye shot from the couch, and that's when I realized that for shrinks, the purchase of multiple clocks was just part of the cost of doing business. I got through that session one with Jack, where I retold the stories of Van Cliburn and looking at the stars at night, followed by an angry Lifetime Channel version of the Go Fish card game, followed by a laundry list of all the abuses I had suffered in the last few years. Jack refilled his pipe and told me that he was available twice a week for the next few months. Now, I don't think Jack thought I was coming unhinged, but I think he realized he had hit upon a gold mine of someone who could tell stories for an hour straight and didn't care if he smoked. I went back to Jack later that week, and I hit him with the, (laughs) you'll appreciate this, David, the prehistoric version of the Tobolowsky Files, Episode 2. Jack never said a word until the end of the session. Then he gave me his first piece of professional advice. He said, Stephen, I think you're going to find being a single heterosexual man being tall, in his 30s, with a good income, that women will be throwing themselves at you. I want you to play the field. Go out and have as many varied sexual experiences as you can, then come back and tell me about them. I said, Jack, are you trying to get me to pimp for you? What are you talking about? I can't have sex. I'm heartbroken. And what do you mean, play the field? Have you seen the field lately? There are a lot of broken bottles and old tires in that field these days. The field ain't what it used to be, Jack. Every woman I'm going to meet in their 30s and mid-30s, late 30s, has already been dumped several times, and they hate men. Jack said, angry sex isn't necessarily bad sex. I said, Jack, that's not why I'm here. I don't want to get laid. I'm here because I feel like I'm dying every minute of every day. I can't see tomorrow. It hurts just to breathe. I can't sleep. I can't eat. To which Jack said, well, that's normal. That's just how you're going to feel. I can't do anything about that. That's just how people feel after a breakup. Wow. In that one moment, Jack earned his money. That's just how you're going to feel. And then in my mind, I went back to the first time I rode a horse at Claire Richard's birthday party in fourth grade. My horse, Big Gray, would not move. All the other kids were wandering down the trail, but I was still at the barn, furiously jumping up and down in that saddle, kicking that horse in the side, saying, hee giddy up, giddy up, go, 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 Big Gray, go, to no avail. Big Gray had been down that road around the barn too many times, and he wasn't going this morning. The skinny, mean old man in the blue jeans who put us up on the horses came over to me and said, He ain't a-going? I said, "Uh, No, sir. The skinny man picked up a fallen tree branch from the ground and walloped Big Gray in the head. Big Gray took off like he was in the Kentucky Derby. The last thing I heard was the skinny man laughing, calling out to me, 
Well, he's a going now. Even as a child, I knew I didn't envy Big Gray's life. No, no, no. But I was impressed by the simplicity of Skinny Man's methodology. That's what I needed now. I didn't need Jack. I didn't need therapy. I needed to be my own skinny man and wallop me in the head. I decided I would shake some things up. I had moved out of the house. I rented another place. I needed furniture, and a friend of mine winked at me and said, the first thing I should get was a bed. Yeah. And he said, make sure it's a soft bed, but make sure it's a strong bed, if you know what I mean. And he grinned and raised his eyebrows. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that afternoon, I bought the first bed I'd ever bought on my own. And he was right. It's so much better having a soft place to cry. In the past few weeks, I would start crying unexpectedly, and then I would lose the strength in my knees and fall on the floor. It not only hurt, but you realize that floors are a lot dirtier than you imagine, even if you're a relatively clean person. When you're crying face down on the floor, you see all sorts of clumps of dust and bits of food, ballpoint pens under tables and chairs. I found it much better if I started crying to try to move outside because the yard was so much softer than the kitchen floor. But, of course, it really is dirty because, definitionally, you are falling on dirt. So having a bed to cry on was a revelation. Several of my guy friends saw my being single for the first time in my adult life as a green light to party. I'd rented a house with a swimming pool. It was L.A., where many women not only set the bar low, they have no bar at all. And we did have three things that these women found irresistible. Alcohol, cocaine, and no expectations. I should say right off the bat that I never understood cocaine. The drug is not only highly addictive and expensive, but when you took it, you were incapable of eating, sleeping, or having sex which are the three goals of the average adult. So what's the point? I do recall one evening as I was trying to shake things up. There were three of us guys and about four girls. We had shed our clothing on the pretext of swimming in the pool, and we were alternating between cocaine and beer and marijuana. We were trying to balance the effects of the stimulants and depressants so we would end up normal but with the inability to have a conversation. Our ultimate goal was apparently to bore these women into having sex with us. We had run out of cocaine hours ago, and we were just smoking grass, and wonder of wonders, I found another gram of coke in the pocket of my discarded clothes, and everybody was thrilled. I emptied the coke onto the mirror where we had been rolling the reefers and started to line it up for everyone. I figured this would keep us going until dawn. However, I neglected to clean the mirror from rolling the marijuana, so the lines of coke had little twigs and seeds in them. Undeterred, I snorted my line of coke up and immediately blasted out with a huge sneeze with all the twigs and the seeds and an explosion of blood down my face and chest. Unaware that I looked like something from the final scene of Taxi Driver, I popped the top of a beer and suavely sauntered over to one of the ladies, and I asked her if she wanted another dip in the pool. She looked up at me and said, Nah, but do you have any more of those beers left? My friend told me I had to wash the blood off if I ever expected to get laid. 
I washed it off, but I didn't get laid. I wasn't cut out to be a player. You see, I take things too seriously. Shortly thereafterwards, I quit my pursuit of sex, drugs, and psychiatry to heal my heart. But I did come up with a program of my own that actually worked. I decided to invest my time in things I loved instead of things I feared. I started taking piano lessons again. I picked out a type of music I'd never really listened to and gave it a try. And it happened to be modern atonal music. And I found it was really kind of wonderful in its own weird way. I started focusing on getting healthy. I went to the gym. I took walks. I went to art museums in hopes of getting inspired by others. It slowly started to work. I left the city whenever I could to be in nature. And it's amazing how comforting the simple things were, like trees or a mountain or snow. When I was able to turn my attention from my own pain and look at the amazing world around me, I started feeling better. I was rediscovering the miracle of my own life. I felt better right away, but don't be deceived. I never got over it. I'm still not over it completely, and maybe that's a good thing. What good is a journey if you can't remember where you've been? Now there's a beautiful in the valley ahead There neat the oaks bound Soon we will wear Should we lose each other In the shadow of the evening tree Girl, I wait for you If I should fall behind Wait for me Girl, I'll wait for you If I should fall behind That was Heart Broken, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You know, Stephen, you tweeted this week on your Twitter account that uh, you actually got recognized uh, for not one of your roles, but what, how did you get recognized? <laughs> Yes, this is a first. It, it was so amazing and exciting. The other night, uh, I was recognized by a man who says, oh, you're the guy who tells the stories. Which is the first time this has ever happened in your whole life. Is that correct? First time. From, from, it has to be from the, you know, the Tobolowsky file stories. So um, this, this was, you know, because, you know, forever I'm recognized as Ned or Freaky Friday or, or Sammy Jenkins or something like this. But this was a first, and I got to say, David, I was kind of secretly more proud of it than about any of them, even though, you know, we're making the money hand over fist doing this. I know, right. Like, yeah, we're really right, raking right. it in. But uh, to, you know, I, I think the real reason for that is uh, that this is the first time that you're getting recognized for playing yourself, Stephen. <laughs> Oh, God. That's probably true. Ouch. <laughs> well, Ouch, that's scary. Why, why is that scary? I think well, it's, I, I think I, it's... I, you know, there's two theories of acting. You know, there's one theory of acting that you are always yourself in your roles. But the other theory of acting is the people who gravitate toward acting are people who are terrified of being themselves, and they always have to hide behind 
the shield of another character to express what they think and feel. So I, I never knew which category I fell in, but maybe because I, you know, some of these stories are hard to write and, and some of them are goofy and easy, but maybe you're right that this is kind of the real me. Ooh, ouchie. I know, yeah. It feels dirty to me as well. But anyway, <laughs> if people, if people want to learn more about the real you, Stephen, how can they yes. follow you on Twitter? I think it would be great if they followed me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Tobolowski or on email with, uh, that is, uh, Stephen Tobolowski at gmail.com. And I'll spell it because in the electronic world, you get nowhere without spelling a name right. And, or, or you get to some weird uh, nude pictures of Stephen Tobolowski site. So uh, my name is spelled S-T-E-P-H. E-N-T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L-O-W-S-K-Y. Uh, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. You can also email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And please check out the uh, Tobolowski testimonies as well at tobolowski.tumblr.com. I think that's about it for this week, Stephen. You have any interesting gigs or anything like that coming up you want to tell people about? Yeah, this comes out Friday, I believe. So this Saturday, you you will be able to hear from this Saturday. I will be at Autograph Nationals at uh, the Pasadena Civic Center there. And there'll be a lot of folks there from sci-fi and movies and Seinfeld show and just a lot of different people uh, with uh, – it, it's going to be a fun place if, if you want to meet people or see people or come by and say hello to me. I will be uh, signing uh, Stephen Tobolowsky birthday party movies there, oh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So come on by if you're in the Southern California area. We would love it. That's going to be on March 20th, right? I believe Saturday, so, March yeah. 20th. Yeah, so check that out if you want to meet Stephen in real life. It's still a joy that I have not yet experienced, but hopefully I will soon. So yeah, That's right. Uh, all right, guys, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week. Adios. <laughs> now there's a beautiful river in the valley ahead. There neat the oaks soon we will be. Should we lose each other in the shadow of the evening tree? Girl, I wait for you. If I should fall behind, wait for me. And girl, I wait for you. If I should fall behind, wait for me.